Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10, that's podcast10, to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Now, to the top analysis of today's crypto markets. Could a resolution in the Genesis bankruptcy come as soon as this week? We bring you the key takeaways from the first hearing. Welcome to Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington. I'm joined today by James Murphy, a.k.a. Meta Lawman. Welcome to the show, James. Great to be on with you, Ash. I look forward to our discussion. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you here. Let's take a look at our price analysis. Bitcoin has continued to perch at around $23,000 since Saturday. That's interesting. There's interesting data from Glassnode reported by Coindesk. The percentage of short-term holders of Bitcoin that are in profit has reached 97.5%. This is the highest number since November. Glassnode says long-term Bitcoin holders are now also in profit for the first time in six months. Glassnode, I identifies short-term as fewer than 155 days, while long-term is more than 155 days. One other optimistic piece of data comes to us from analysis at Bitfinex. On-chain data shows Bitcoin selling by miners has hit a three-year low. Meanwhile, Ether continues to enjoy smaller gains than Bitcoin. Coindesk reports Ethereum-Bitcoin currency pair has declined 8% since January 11th. This trajectory is again playing out today, although the moves are somewhat marginal. One final token we're looking at here today is Threshold, whose ticker symbol is T. Threshold is a DeFi crypto network. T is the best performer of the day by a country mile. The token has skyrocketed 120% on a 24-hour basis. That's after crypto exchange Coinbase put it on its roadmap to listing. That doesn't mean Coinbase will definitely list it, however important to point out. Uh, now let's join in the conversation. Put down the questions in the chat wherever you're watching. We'll ask the best ones later on in the show. Remember, Real Vision members take priority, but the good news is membership is free. With that said, let's bring in our guest. James Murphy is the founder of financial services law firm Murphy and McGonigal. He now runs Meta Law Man. James, welcome. Thanks, Ash. It's great to be on with you. I look forward to, to uh, getting into some of these meaty issues with you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you here. First, give us a little bit of your backstory. I know we talked about this uh, before we started uh, the show here today off camera. Fascinating story. Well, uh, thank you. I, I've been a securities litigator for 30 years. and the last 10 years of that, I was running my own law firm and uh, decided that I would try something a little different and created a boutique firm structure that was uh, really exclusively focused on the financial services industry. So I hired about 20 lawyers who had previously worked at the SEC. We brought in a couple from the CFTC, and we brought together also some uh, former federal prosecutors from the Southern District of New York 
And our focus really was on Wall Street investment banks, but also trading venues like the New York Stock Exchange, NASDAQ, and, and the Chicago exchanges as well. Uh, and that was great, uh, great work, exciting stuff. And then 2017 comes along and I get very interested in digital assets and Bitcoin and try to learn all I can. And I conclude that it was time for us to pivot our law firm toward representing some of these emerging um, companies that were, you know, the, the very overused word disrupting uh, right. traditional finance. Uh, and in fact, they were and have been. And so it was a great pivot for us. And we soon uh, found that given our credential base, we were representing many of the uh, big exchanges, crypto ch exchanges here in the United States, uh, as well as um, issuers of tokens and NFT, creative people, as well as infrastructure, blockchain players, you know, security and things of that nature. And so it really um, raised the profile of our law firm and we were recognized mm -hmm. a couple of times as law firm of the year in securities regulation. And that was the first time a, a small firm had achieved that. And so it was right. a very exciting time. And finally, uh, I'll say I really went down the rabbit hole. I know that's kind of an overused cliche now, but <laughs> we even went to mining Bitcoin within the law firm. So not law firms <laughs> can say that, but uh, we had a free, meaning zero uh, dollars per kilowatt hour, source of electricity at one of our uh, offices. And so I felt there was a, a moral imperative to start mining <laughs> crypto in that circumstance. Well, James, you know, I and many of our viewers have also gone down that very same rabbit hole. It almost goes without saying that you're the perfect guest today to talk about some of these stories uh, that are out in the ether. Let's jump in and take a look at the first one. Yesterday, it was the first hearing in the Genesis bankruptcy case. It took place here in New York City. Coindesk reports lawyers for Genesis Global told the court that they've been working with creditors, representatives, and the U.S. trustee's office, quote, around the clock for the past two months. The trustee office program is a component of the Department of Justice that oversees bankruptcy proceedings. The Genesis lawyers say that they want to reach a, quote, consensual resolution with the creditors. Notably, the lawyers said that they could reach that agreement this week. One proposed solution is a sale of the company to generate the funds. Genesis halted loan redemptions, of course, in November. The company suffered what its lawyers called a run on the bank in the wake of the FTX collapse. Obviously, some challenges coming out from 3AC and some lending that they made there as well. Last week, the lending business of Genesis filed for bankruptcy protection, as many of our viewers already know. The next hearing is set for mid February. James, obviously, there's a lot of news flow here on Genesis. This is an incredibly important story for the space. Big picture, what are your thoughts? Well, I listened to the whole uh, hearing. It goes on for a while, these first day hearings in a big bankruptcy case. Uh, so a couple observations. Number one, um, Genesis was very well prepared for initiating this bankruptcy unlike FTX, where it happened really kind of chaotically with, with very little notice and preparation. Here, Genesis has been working for two months with all of their advisors on the what-if scenario. If we have to declare bankruptcy, what should that look like? Can we do a prepackaged bankruptcy where we come in with a plan endorsed uh, by the creditors? So what we saw um, yesterday was 
a plan, a very extensive 80-page plan of uh, restructuring um, these three entities that declared bankruptcy and a statement that it's very close to an agreement with the creditors. Now, it should be noted that's not unfounded optimism because the creditors spoke up as well and said, yeah, we agree. We're optimistic uh, that we can get this deal done, perhaps even this week. Now, I think what people need to understand is this deal doesn't resolve everything. The deal that, that was proposed by the debtor says, we're gonna go out and try to sell the assets of uh, gen these Genesis entities, not all of them declared bankruptcy, just three, uh, and see what kind of yield we can get on the sales of those assets. And if, we, you know, whatever that is, this is how, how it will be distributed. This is how various classes of, of creditors will be treated. So it doesn't resolve everything, but rather all of the, the, the constituencies agree on this is a path forward that we hope will play out quickly. You know, we could do an entire show just on this story here today. Obviously, there's a lot here. Let me just ask a couple of questions. Uh, so first, or just a statement, you know, most people in this space believe that Barry Silver is a very smart guy. I think he has a background in his pre-crypto days on Wall Street working in restructuring. Uh, so probably not surprising, uh, as you say, that he was very well prepared or his team was very well prepared going into this. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about the prepackaged bankruptcy. I know this is an idea uh, that many people who follow this space, particularly from the computer and engineering side, uh, who don't have strong backgrounds on the legal side, find really confusing. This idea of a prepackaged bankruptcy, uh, where the creditors and the debtors essentially walk into bankruptcy court hand in hand and say, we've got a deal, we've got an arrangement, this is the structure we'd like to work out obviously dependent on the asset uh, base uh, being sold at a valuation that is uh, sort of within the range of estimates that the creditors and the debtors feel uh, they can get. Obviously, it's a volatile space. You know, it's interesting because we've seen these nasty grams going back and forth between the Winklevoss twins uh, over at Gemini and Genesis getting very personal, addressing Barry Silbert directly. Of course, the entity involved in this is uh, Genesis and not DCG. But these claims, uh, of you know, essentially really being quite... Uh, quite sharp, I guess it's fair to say in the language. I know that's a lot, James, but uh, jump in, give us a little bit of a sense of, of how one of these prepacks uh, can unfold uh, in the best of circumstances and also where it can go horribly wrong. Well, um, it certainly can go horribly wrong. I think what we see with Genesis is something that came very close to being a prepackaged uh, bankruptcy. I mean, if they can come to an agreement within the end of this week, you know, we're talking about seven or eight days from filing to uh, having an agreement, which would be a prepacked, uh, prepackaged bankruptcy scenario, essentially, if they had it the day they filed. So very close to doing it uh, with that uh, strategy. There are a couple really odd things, however, uh, here. You mentioned uh, Barry Silver and DCG. Um, there was a special committee uh, that is is uh, isolated from DCG that is driving this, that made the decision that these three Genesis uh, subsidiaries would file for bankruptcy. And what's interesting is uh, the plan talks about setting up a trust to conduct litigation against some parties. And it talks about how the recoveries from that litigation will be uh, uh, distributed to creditors. And they describe the litigation. And the litigation starts with claims against DCG. So we're talking about really unusual here. 
that a subsidiary yeah. is forming a special litigation committee to analyze and perhaps prosecute claims against the parent. Now, the basis for that is uh, DCG has borrowed heavily from Genesis. So uh, that's spelled out in, in the uh, bankruptcy filing that they, that they had borrowed about $500 million from Genesis. Um, and they also have a note to Genesis in the amount of $1.1 billion. It's payable nine years from now. So, but, but by the way, can we just unpack that a little bit? Because the promissory note, I think, is at the very center of this case. It effectively seems almost like an asset swap of one liability for the next. Talk a little bit about how this works, what it means, and why it's so important to this case. Well, honestly, I don't know the how the accounting treatment works, but you're absolutely right. It's a swap of a claim against um, Three Arrows Capital for a DCG, a DCG promissory note, which presumably is a better credit than- So, so let's uh, walk through that. So essentially the loan was made from Genesis to Three Arrows Capital. Three Arrows Capital defaulted on the loan. I believe it was was it 1.4 or 1.2 billion dollars, a substantial uh, number. So Genesis now carrying that bad asset on their balance sheet. I don't know if that's the correct legal term, but they're carrying this defaulted asset on their balance sheet, and then they swap with the parent company. They take that off the balance sheet, move it up to uh, DCG. DCG in turn gives a promissory note. And what, what is the reasoning behind this? I mean, I know that this is obviously not something that you were involved with, but give us a little bit of context here for why something like this might be done. It's speculation. I mean, the accounting really is important here. Um, you know, there's a difference between holding a claim against a you know, defunct entity of a billion dollars or having a promissory note from a apparently financially viable entity for a billion one. Um, and so maybe a Gemini at that time wanted to appear uh, given all lending uh, activity that was going on uh, each way. You know, they, they borrow, Genesis is a borrower and in turn lends in hopes that the amount they pay to people they borrow from is a lower interest rate than what they can lend it to um, mainly liquidity providers and crypto at a much higher rate. And that's how they make money. Uh, but in any event, maybe there are um, certain requirements and covenants about what the balance sheet must look like at Gemini in order to be treated as a, as a uh, trustworthy counterparty for lending. Um, so I, I don't know, but I can say in going through all those papers, there was an inordinate number of, uh, intercompany exchanges in right. large, in large numbers. So 500 billion, 500 million that was lent from Genesis to DCG at, in various tranches. Well, there are also loans from DCG to, to Genesis at the same time. So I can't explain, uh, all of that, but, yeah. uh, It'll be a lot to unwind, and it may explain why there's a special committee looking at legal claims to bring against DCG.
Yeah, obviously it's very confusing. It's very complicated. There are a lot of uh, entities involved here, entities and sub-entities and the names sound alike. Uh, talking of which, I wanted to get into this next story here, uh, which is somewhat linked, I think it's fair to say, to Genesis. Uh, according to an exclusive report in the information, crypto exchange Gemini is laying off 10% of its staff. That's the third mass layoff at the crypto company in eight months. Gemini co-founder Cameron Winklevoss blamed, quote, persistent negative macroeconomic conditions and unprecedented fraud perpetuated by bad actors, close quote. I guess we're all left to wonder who those bad actors might be uh, in that quote. Of course, Gemini has been caught up in the Genesis bankruptcy, as we've just been discussing. Uh, Gemini lost access to user funds in its earned program on Genesis. Cameron Winklevoss has threatened to sue Genesis's parent company, Digital Currency Group, also known as DCG, uh, and its CEO, Barry Silbert, over the situation at Genesis. You know, obviously this is very confusing and we're trying to unpack it here and we're trying to explain uh, to our audience uh, what we're looking at. And if I goof anything up, uh, James, give me, a, give me a heads up, just shout at me because this is a lot of information. Listen, let's talk about something here that is uh, kind of an interesting idea that I think viewers uh, who are maybe new to the, the business law front may not have a sort of solid footing in themselves. And this is this idea of these, these threatened lawsuits. So as a general proposition, just as a, as a sort of a base case, a vanilla case, uh, when you have a, a holding company and a portfolio company and the portfolio company defaults uh, on a loan or has some sort of liability and they get sued by a creditor, as a general proposition, what does the law look like around whether or not the parent company is liable for the portfolio company or operating company's liabilities how does that work? I know this is sort of a, a very elaborate sort of complex case, but as a vanilla case, how does that generally work? Um, well, the reason for setting up separate corporations is to uh, isolate the liabilities of that uh, subsidiary from the parent. Um, and so there are two ways generally to bring in a parent. One would be if the parent has made some kind of guarantee whether it's an explicit written signed guarantee or some other kind of indication of guaranteeing the obligations of a subsidiary would be one way. And then the other way is called piercing the corporate veil, which means you need to establish that there's overlap in terms of governance, uh, that there's not uh, a separate board acting strictly in the best interest of the subsidiary. And there are many factors under state law about how you can uh, pierce the corporate veil and bring in the, uh, bring in the, uh, you know, the part of the parent in, in that organization. Would, would um, one, would one potential claim, again, we're talking here is sort of in abstraction, uh, be this, this idea that there had been funds that would, had been lent between a parent company and a portfolio company? Because I know we have already one lawsuit. I believe it's the Dutch cryptocurrency exchange Bitvavo has sued DCG, uh, the parent company. So what are the sort of the nature of those claims? Can you make an assertion saying, hey, look, you know, there have been assets that have been borrowed and lent between these operating entities, between the operating entities and the parent companies. Uh, is that the sort of uh, potential claim that you might see in a court in a bankruptcy filing? It's possible. And, you know, as long as DCG is not in bankruptcy, you can sue them outside of the bankruptcy. And so, um, yes, tracing funds, if it was done improperly, um, 
not at arm's length, not on market terms, then this is a critical point, this idea of arm's length. And I know that's uh, something that may be new to some of our viewers, but it's this idea uh, that if an entity, a corporation is loaning to uh, a corporation that has some sort of uh, shared, uh, for example, the stakeholders, the shareholders of the corporation uh, have some relationship, this idea of arm's length, it means it has to be done sort of as a neutral transaction that another market participant might do. In other words, not preferential treatment. That's why this phrase keeps coming up at arm's length. And I believe, uh, based on what I've read from DCG, that's their assertion that these were arm's length transactions. Right. So who knows? We'll, we'll, we'll certainly find out. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, and then another issue is, did the paperwork the, uh, where the loans were originated between uh, uh, Gemini and Genesis allow Genesis to lend that those assets to affiliates? Or were they restricted to only lending to non-affiliated companies like Three Arrows Capital, Alameda, you know, and many others that have, that have you know, gone bankrupt themselves? Um, so if it permitted um, loans to affiliated companies, then, you know, it's going to be hard, uh, to bring, uh, DCG in. Although, you know, uh, the Winklevoss people say that DCG involved itself in the transactions when Gemini was getting uncomfortable about whether, uh, Genesis had sufficient assets to deliver the, you know, return the money that had been loaned right. through, through, through these customers of Gemini and that, that, uh, that, uh, the parent stepped up. And in fact, um, Gemini received 30 million, um, shares of the grayscale Bitcoin trust. Um, and this of course, from another DCG operating entity, grayscale investments that controls GBTC and ETH -E, among other exchange traded products in the crypto space. Right. So apparently the Winklevoss uh, brothers had a right to demand additional collateral for the approximately $900 million that had been lent by Gemini's customers to, uh, to Genesis. And then one interesting point that came out, um, Ash, is, is that the Winklevoss people liquidated that collateral three days before the bankruptcy of uh genesis and so they may have known that it was coming and they may have had concern that they wouldn't be able to liquidate collateral after the bankruptcy um was filed because of an automatic stay now mm -hmm. the unfortunate thing for everyone involved is they liquidated in uh, i think it was november around november 16th and the bankruptcy filing was the 19th well unfortunately the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust was trading at, at $9 and change at that time, and now it's trading around 12. And so that differential, you know, on 30 million shares 
is close to a $100 million that was left on the table. You know, this is hindsight, of course. Who knew that uh, Bitcoin was going to rock it up as it has over the last couple of weeks? But unfortunately, right. they realized a lot less from that collateral than they would have if they had, had waited. Yeah, there are all kinds of points to make here. There's this idea of dollarization in the lawsuit where the assets essentially get dollarized at a particular date on the filing. Uh, there's the challenge of the market prices of where these things uh, get bought and sold. Additionally, there's the idea of clawback provisions uh, around this, meaning uh, and this is a case here uh, at, at, at DCG, Gemini, Genesis, but also a factor in the FTX Alameda lawsuits, the idea that if creditors uh, were seen to have some sort of preferential treatment, if they attempted to liquidate a position, that a bankruptcy court might come and claw those back uh, at some point in the future. Uh, one sort of just generic disclosure that we should make here uh, is obviously you have, in this case, multiple parties arguing uh, obviously different things in their pleadings, in their filings. Important to point out that we have claims, we have counterclaims. Very often, those two are at loggerheads to each other. They're contradictions. We're just trying to tease out the facts here uh, and get as much information to our viewers as we possibly can, because this is uh, obviously a very complicated story. By the way, since I brought up FTX, James, uh, give us uh, your take on where we are right now in that case, uh, particularly with regard uh, to where some of the creditors, the users of those platforms might stand in terms of attempting to make recoveries and what that legal process generically looks like. And also, if you have any specific insights in this case. Well, there's a lot uh, going on in, in FTX. It's fascinating. I tell my friends that this case has got to show up in the uh, in the uh, law school textbooks on on bankruptcy because there's so many really fascinating issues. So just looking back uh, to last week, Sullivan and Cromwell was appointed as debtors counsel. There were some objections to that. Uh, the and, and there were objections to that because F Sullivan Cromwell had worked with FTX as a client prior to representing their creditors, I believe. Absolutely right. Uh, and they had received eight and a half million dollars in legal fees uh, in the 16 months prior to the implosion of FTX. And so that raises a lot of conflicts issues. Ultimately, the judge decided to permit uh, Sullivan and Cromwell to continue in that role. Uh, interestingly, the U.S. trustee had opposed Sullivan and Cromwell and then at the hearing, changed its position to support Sullivan and Cromwell. At the very last minute, the chief regulatory officer of FTX dropped in a uh, really uh, surprising uh, affidavit uh, accusing Sullivan and Cromwell of a host of things, including malpractice and unethical conduct. And the judge decided to just disregard that um, uh, submission because this uh, person, Daniel Friedberg, was not available for cross-examination. So in any event, that's done. The next big issue that's coming up in a couple of weeks is the appointment of an independent examiner, which would be somebody independent to come in and look at what happened and who was involved uh, and then make a public, a report to the public of, of what happened. And the value of that is uh, the same thing happened in Enron that an independent examiner was brought in to study exactly what went wrong at Enron and to point the finger at auditors, accountants, bankers, and lawyers. And that, that report served as sort of a springboard for actual claims, ironically, 
by Mr. John J. Ray against the accountants, auditors, bankers, and lawyers. And he recovered very substantial amounts of money from them uh, due in no small part to that independent uh, examination. So it's like um, when the FAA comes in and takes a look at the black box uh, after a right, air tragedy. That's exactly right. And another issue, I'll just leave you with this one. I know we've got a lot to cover, but something you're going to cover in, in one of your next stories is are FTX customers creditors or are they just customers and whatever assets are left on the platform uh, are belong to them are left on the platform yeah. or or are traceable uh, to their deposits should they all go back to them this is a huge billion dollar question and i think the answer could it's not legal advice the answer could come out differently from what we saw in celsius where the court mm. said celsius took ownership of the deposits because they were authorized to lend the money out in this crypto lending right. uh, uh, situation that we see at Genesis and Voyager as well. But not, yep. not FTX. FTX says it's yours. The money and assets remain your property. It never becomes the property of FTX. And if that's true, then it's not an asset of this FTX estate. It belongs to the to the customers. But of course, the big complication here is the books appear to have been scrambled and it's unclear, you know, where exactly the, the customer deposits went and how to retrieve them um, is, is going to be a, an enormous challenge. But this is a huge yes. legal issue that if it if the customer money belongs to the customer is not assets to the debtor estate, then for instance, None of the uh, professionals, the law the lawyers, Mr. Ray, Alvarez and Marcel, the restructuring experts, the bankers are looking to sell. None of them can be paid right. out of those dollars that belong to the customers. So a fascinating issue. It's going to go in the law books yeah. for sure, whichever way it comes out. This is a fascinating point, and I've been making it here in far less detail and far less technical terms. Uh, I observed earlier that much of the reporting around this interchangeably used the terms users, lenders, depositors, and creditors, when clearly that is not the case uh, under the law. So a crucial issue uh, that really has real-world implications in terms of who gets back what, what pools of assets are available uh, to pay whom, and at what priority, which is really uh, at the core of just about every bankruptcy case uh, here uh, that we've ever seen. Uh, so many incredibly important points. By the way, I should say, uh, talking about these issues, uh, you're tweeting about these regularly on your Twitter page, at Meta Lawman, uh, particularly around FTX, Genesis, Gemini, uh, all important cases that you have been following very closely on your Twitter, and I personally have been uh, enjoying that coverage. Uh, just to move on here a little bit, because we've got some additional news flow that I'd really like to get your view on. Uh, it's great to have you here today on this day when there's so many regulatory stories. Starting first here in New York City, regulators have issued a new warning to crypto companies. Here's what the New York Department of Financial Services outlined in its open letter to the industry. The ideas that they're talking about are how customer assets should be separated from each other, something we've just been talking about here, how they should be used by custodians, another core issue, and how to maintain proper disclosure 
requirements when holding on to digital assets from clients. So all of that uh, sort of very germane to the points that we've been making. The new set of guidelines applies to companies that operate in New York State and hold a bit license. That's a license here in New York uh, that they started issuing in 2015 to regulate companies involved in digital asset activities. James, plays perfectly in to our last points. What's your take on this new legislation? Well, two point, uh, two 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 points. Uh, interesting coincidence that Gemini was there at the inception of the bit license. Gemini right. was repeatedly you know, providing input, and I think this is a, a very, to their credit, a very positive thing for the industry to have a you know a, a representative involved in the development of a really really important regulatory regime. But now. Uh, this basically the way I read that story, Ash, is that this entire business model of taking deposits and lending them to, you know, hedge funds and high leverage players um, that Genesis and Voyager and Celsius were all involved in is outlawed. If you have a bit license, forget it. You can't do that if what's required is you segregate the assets for the customer and those assets remain the property of the customer. You can't take them and lend them out to someone to try to gain you know, a yield uh, on it if you are the Bitcoin licensee. So it's basically outlawed a business model which interestingly during this crypto winter has shown to be not a really good business model yeah um, especially you know, not for the for the customers uh, james do you hear uh talking of uh, places where this had been outlawed and we had some challenges there do you hear uh, echoes of mf global in any of this uh boy i sure do and right when it came out uh, I think even before maybe the the bankruptcy, but there were whispers about uh, of FTX. There were whispers about it, and everyone was saying, "Well, this is like Enron, or this is like this Ponzi scheme, or whatever." I said, "No, no, no. This is MF Global, in all its dimensions, because yeah. in MF Global, a really popular, well-known, rich, Democratic political funder and candidate. He was he was the." Governor and and senator from this is John Jersey. John Corzine for people John who aren't Corzine from built up such big positions read like Alameda that he needed more capital to back his positions and so they took customer deposits in these um, uh, de derivatives accounts that they had at MF Global same same scenario. Um, I guess in, in that the, case, the customers came out at par, I think, right? They came out whole at 100 cents on the dollar. Eventually, it just took some time to get there. Right. So I, I think that Corzine didn't make a bunch of uh, bets that were spectacularly terrible, like Alameda, you know, that were just constantly being written off. Also, I don't believe Corzine gave himself... $2.1 billion in loans as Sam Bankman-Fried did out of Alameda, et cetera, et cetera. So they didn't have all of these components that put FTX way, way, way underwater. But in terms of how it played out in enabling, you know, outsized trades, violating margin rules, MF Global is, is, a, is a really uh, good parallel.
Yeah, and it's especially interesting because MF Global was clearly regulated, clearly onshore, clearly uh, regulated by a whole alphabet soup of regulatory agents uh, here in the United States as well as in New York State. Uh, so that was a challenge. And by the way, I don't think anyone was ever criminally charged with MF Global, were they? No, you make a really good point. And I, I did tweet out about this. There was, and, and we hope this is, or I hope this is not going to replay itself with Sam Bankman Freed, but there was a multi-year serious DOJ investigation into John Corzine, and he was not uh, prosecuted criminally. He paid a fine to the SEC, and he paid some money to settle class action lawsuits and went on his way. Uh, also talking about regulation, there's regulatory activity over in Europe as well. The Block reports French lawmakers will be voting in the next few hours on stricter crypto regulation. This would include mandatory licensing for providers of digital asset services. That would mean Europe, uh, was, essentially that would mean that France, I guess I should say, would have its own set of rules even before the European-wide regulations come to into effect uh, towards the end of 2024. The block says at the moment registration is optional and no crypto company has been able to meet that criteria. Speaking of the EU, a European Parliament committee voted on new strict rules regarding capital requirements for banks that hold crypto. One amendment states that banks would have to apply a risk weighting of 1,250% of capital to crypto asset exposures. This would mean that they'd have to hold enough capital uh, to cover a complete loss in the crypto asset value. Uh, obviously, for those who are not familiar with it, 1,250% is a very high number for a risk-weighted <laughs> asset uh, percentage. Uh, it seems like the regulatory environment everywhere is toughening up in many parts of the world. Uh, I know these are a lot of stories over in Europe, but uh, big picture, what are your thoughts uh, on the general context and also on MICA more specifically? Well, I, I would say the United States is uh, falling behind uh, for sure. The France thing is interesting because, uh, you know, Binance is licensed in France. So they've got a, uh, they have a licensing regime now that is not particularly onerous and they've rolled out something that looks more like you know, a, a quite comprehensive and some would say onerous um, uh, regime in the bit license in New York. Well, that's what they're doing, rolling out in France, and they're surprised no one's signing up for it uh, yet. So I think they're going to have to figure out a way to encourage people uh, to do that, uh, because right now, Binance is permitted to uh, do business in France using this sort of regula regulation light uh, approach. Uh, with respect to the EU Parliament, um, people are really, really interested in how that will all come out. Um, and there will be built in, if it passes, there'll be built in um, two or three years uh, of time for uh, crypto companies to adjust uh, to the new regime. Um, the You're absolutely right on the capital requirements under Basel Three, um, typically banks have to hold uh, 8%, around 8% for, for most assets uh, as a reserve. Um, and here, what they're saying essentially is that uh, banks that want to hold crypto are going to need to hold 100% of uh, security for that asset on their balance sheet, which to me means that it is in a sense a sterilized deposit. So if you deposit one Bitcoin, uh, it can't be lent. No, no portion of that 
uh, Bitcoin can be lent to some borrower. And so what I think you're going to yeah. have happen is simply storage of these right. crypto assets and maybe a fee right. will be charged to the depositor. Well, that's certainly a broader theme, this notion of sterilization, segregation, uh, ring fencing seems to be a broad theme here across the board. By the way, James, you made the perfect segue for me uh, when you mentioned Binance. Uh, according to Bloomberg, Binance keeps collateral for some of the tokens they issued in the same wallets as customer funds. Once again, right to the same point. <laughs> Binance issues 94 coins that are known as Binance PEG tokens or B tokens. Uh, reserves for almost half of those B tokens are currently stored in a single wallet called Binance 8. Uh, this can be checked, of course, on the Binance website. Bloomberg says that the wallet contains significantly more tokens in reserve than would be required for the amount of B tokens that Binance has issued. Bloomberg says this indicates that collateral is being mixed with customer tokens rather than being segregated and stored separately. A spokesperson for Binance acknowledged the mistake. In a statement to Bloomberg, uh, Binance said, quote, Binance 8 is an exchange cold wallet. Collateral assets have previously been moved into this wallet in error and referenced accordingly on the B-Token proof of collateral page. Binance is aware of this mistake and is in the process of transferring these assets to dedicated collateral wallets. Again, this idea of segregation. The spokesperson added that all users held accounts with Binance, quote, have been able to, have been and continue to be backed one-to-one. -one. So the spokesperson is saying that they have one-to-one -one backing uh, for all of those assets held on Binance on behalf of customers. Notwithstanding what Binance called quote, historical operational oversights. Uh, interesting phrase there. Uh, great uh, data journalism over at Bloomberg figuring these things out. Uh, again, James, all, all of these stories, uh, they kind of rhyme. They all have this sort of thematic uh, sensibility about segregating user assets, how the user assets uh, are, are, are being controlled. Thoughts on this story and on Binance more broadly, James? Well, I have a lot of thoughts. I guess first off, you know, the blockchain is a very useful tool. I mean, Bloomberg, with the, you know, the assistance of a, a blockchain intelligence company, was able to discern this, you know, because the blockchain is public. Uh, so that's a good thing, you know. So looking on the bright side, it is good that um, investors and, and journalists are looking at this stuff. Yeah. Secondly, whenever you hear the phrase commingling of customer assets with assets of the exchange, you worry uh, because, as you say, it rhymes. It rhymes with something we heard recently of FTX. And when the official position of Binance is it's a mistake, well, that's what we heard over and over and over again from Sam Bankman-Fried. Wow, it's a mistake. I should have paid closer attention to what was going on there. Really sorry about that. Um, so it also, you know, feeds into questions about why the auditor refuses to do future proof of reserves audits for, for Binance. You know, yeah. we don't know the answer to that, but it's got to make uh, people nervous. And then you ask generally about Binance, you know, the, there was a really, really important story that came out of Reuters where they had spoken to many uh, people inside the Department of Justice who said they had a money laundering case ready to go, which means ready for indictment against CZ and Binance and perhaps others in that organization. But other parts of the Department of Justice were pushing it back 
not quite sure they had enough to go on, which finally leads you to this very recent announcement of this Russian uh, exchange nobody ever heard of, something like Bizlato, I'm pronouncing it wrong, or whatever. You know, they uh, revealed that the, the number one counterparty to this Russian crypto exchange, which apparently its whole purpose was to do money laundering for, you know, a drug, 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 uh, illegal drugs or whatever, terrorist finance, whatever it might be. That was their business model. Well, their number one counterparty was Binance. And so, you know, if you know how the uh, prosecutors work, it is very typical to go after a low level player to get them to flip and provide information about a bigger fish. You know, the big, the big kahuna would be uh, CZ at Binance. So if you put the Reuters story together with the recent, um, you know, hubbub around this rather small uh, case against the, the, the Russian uh, exchange, you know, so who knows? I don't know, but something might be coming um, CZ's James, way. I all interesting points and and of course uh just to kind of get it some some bigger picture takes on this you know one of the challenges with this space that we've seen is this idea that you have assets uh, asset markets uh, and players that are essentially highly centralized uh and not regulated and it's kind of the worst of all possible worlds you don't have true decentralization you have these centralized parties uh acting uh in some cases uh let's just say problematically from what we've seen uh, and you don't have the ability to truly see it transparently and openly one of the challenges even a even a proof of reserves audit doesn't really measure the proof of liabilities. There's no uh, ability to see the broader balance sheet, uh, the broader statement of cash flows, uh, the broader assets and liabilities. That's the that's the challenge here that we're all trying to sort out in this space as it moves forward. I got to move on because we have viewer questions. Uh, but before we talk about those viewer questions, for those watching on the Real Vision website, first, thank you. If you haven't signed up there yet, check it out at realvision.com forward slash crypto. That's realvision.com forward slash crypto. That's the best way to get early access to Real Vision crypto content. And it's always free. That's where you can find Raul's full interview with Punk 6529. It's a two and a half hour long look inside the mind of one of the most important thinkers in this space. You don't want to miss it again. That's realvision.com forward slash crypto. If you're watching on YouTube, please like and subscribe and hit the notification bell. We definitely appreciate it. Hey everyone, we're gonna take another quick break and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best, it's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line, it's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI, it's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Uh, all that said, James, I want to just jump in and hit some of our questions here from our viewers because as always, they are good ones. Vincent Rybeck on the Real Vision website asks, is there a way in the case of a chapter 11, a non-American can make a case against a defaulted company? Interesting question, James. Um, yes, a, a, uh, non-American, by the way, there are many, many, many of these in the yeah. FTX bankruptcy because both FTX us and FTX 
Dot.com, what they call FTX International, both have declared bankruptcy in Delaware. And so any creditor can file a claim or bring a lawsuit. It's called an adversary proceeding. Um, if they have a claim that's not that has not been reduced to some uh, you know, amount like a deposit of your funds, that's a claim. You really don't have to do anything. There will be a notice that goes out to claimants all around the world saying, here's the deadline for you to file a claim. Here's the form you need to fill out. Some people get a lawyer to help them fill the form out, but it's not complicated. And then you send your form in and then, you know, you're, you're accepted as a creditor. And then you find out what is this plan of resolution going to look like? How many pennies on the dollar is my class of claim going to get? Now, if you have some other kind of claim for like a breach of fiduciary duty or fraud or breach of contract or whatever, yes, you can bring those uh, in the bankruptcy court. And, if, and in fact, you must. You can't file it anywhere else because there is a stay of worldwide litigation against the entities that have filed bankruptcy. While they're going through bankruptcy proceedings and what potentially whether a receivership or whatever happens uh, next. William Tippett on the Real Vision website, uh, in James' monitoring of the situation, has he heard of any legal claims on grayscale assets, GBTC, ETHE, uh, et cetera? Obviously, this is something you touched on earlier, James. A little bit more context on your views on uh, what's happening with grayscale assets. I'll tell you, this, this question is everywhere. Everybody wants to know what is going to happen to that Bitcoin trust that Grayscale manages. Um, DCG owns, uh, as far as I know, owns about 10% uh, of that um, trust, uh, of the shares in the trust. There are disputes about um, the Winklevoss people liquidating 30 million shares of the trust. Um, and we don't know anything about what DCG has done with the shares that it owns. Has it pledged those shares for other loans or are they simply holding them, you know, and, and that's it? We don't know, but uh, are there potential claims against DCG's uh, ownership of grayscale um, units? The answer is that is possible. And if they're dragged into bankruptcy, then that would be one of their assets uh, that would come into the bankruptcy. Um, if, if, you know, that was one of the earlier questions you had, Ash, is, is that something that is possible of getting the parent into the bankruptcy? And if the answer to that is yes, then certainly all assets of the parent come in, including their ownership of Grayscale. Now, there's a whole different set of questions about the management and ownership of grayscale there's a lot there are a lot of people who feel that the uh the fees are way too high for kind of a a, a fairly simple trust just holding bitcoin uh you know you don't have analysts working day and night on a you know, on a particular sector of stocks, selecting right. them and sell. It just holds. And that's a whole other. And that's a whole other can of worms. And and right. and by the way, they were able to charge that premium, presumably, speculative statement here, but presumably because for a very long time it was the only way that you could get exposure uh, to Bitcoin if you had certain covenants. Uh, for example, if you were an institutional investor and you wouldn't have the ability to directly invest in the underlying asset, you couldn't custody it yourself uh, or whatever else uh, was the case. 
you basically could go and buy this exchange-traded product and then have access uh, to that exposure. By the way, I should say for people who are uh, not familiar with this, one of the reasons why this story is so important is the size of GBTC. Currently, I'm looking at the Grayscale website right now. Assets under management, $14.5 billion. That's a lot of money. Uh, they're showing a since inception return of just under 15,000% on the website. But Importantly, uh, while that uh, you know number fluctuated or rose dramatically in the beginning uh, because of the dramatic price appreciation, a, a testament to sort of uh, Barry Silbert having the foresight to spin this up so early and be part of that hockey stick-like movement. Uh, the challenge right now is that uh, GBTC is trading at a discount to NAV. That's the net asset value of uh, of about forty one percent. Meaning you can currently buy a buck's worth of assets uh, for fifty nine cents on the dollar, which gives you some context of where the market is pricing the risk in that product. Um, obviously, a, a, a lot to talk about there, and I, and I wish we had more time, but I have to move on to the next question. This comes to us from Anthony H on the Real Vision website. Uh, boy, this is a very direct one, James. Uh, thoughts on those who have a lot stuck in Gemini Earn and the best way to position ourselves to get it back. Boy, I feel like I should say it for you, James, not legal advice to follow. <laughs> well, I, what I would do is I would get in close contact with um, the creditors committee to understand what they're planning on doing, what positions they're planning on taking, because um, unfortunately, the way it's positioned right now, it's a two-way street. Um, it's not just Gemini's claims against Genesis. Genesis has said they have claims they intend to pursue uh, against Gemini. Uh, so you could imagine a lot of legal fees um, being spilt, lost to creditors, paying for for uh, for a, a, a battle of that of that kind. I hope that does not happen. But if you're a, 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 a uh, in that earn program, what you should do is contact the committee that represents your interest and make sure they know who you are, make sure you know how you can get real-time information from them. And if you see them uh, taking positions that you disagree with, then, then you have a right to be heard because in a committee setting, and by the way, unlike FTX, there are numerous committees that have been formed in Genesis because they recognize that some of the creditors have very conflicting interests in how this bankruptcy plays out. And so they have separate counsel and they have a separate, you know, list of creditors who are on the committee. Those creditors owe a fiduciary duty to all creditors who are similarly situated. So if there's a committee representing the earn uh, investors through Gemini into, into Genesis, then they owe you a, uh, a fiduciary duty. And they sure as heck need to communicate with you and listen to you if you've got a point of view on, on how the thing ought to, uh, ought to proceed. James, we always appreciate very direct, uh, down-to-earth, simple uh, framework there. And that's uh, a very simple explanation, I think, for people who are wondering and thinking about what they need to do Next, really fantastic conversation here today. Uh, great analysis, incredible amount of material that we've covered here. Uh, final thoughts, key takeaways from this conversation that you'd like to leave our viewers and listeners with. Yeah, absolutely, Ash. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, I have been thinking about what, what are the takeaways? What are, what are the big lessons from all of these bankruptcies? And what we've seen is this business model of taking investment from investors or in Gemini's case, you know, depositors of funds, 
and then having someone lend it out at high rates to very high leverage players like Three Arrows Capital, Alameda, and, and, and it goes on and on and on, is a very dangerous business model. And it works beautifully uh, when we're in a bull market. It works okay when we're in a flat market, but when there's a crypto winter, what we've seen is every single one has collapsed. Now, somebody could say, well, they had poor risk management or poor leadership or something, and the, uh, and the business model is just fine. They could say that, but I think what's likely is some people are gonna look at that and say, what's a better model for doing this, you know, to acting as a lender, sort of as a prime broker for hedge funds that want leverage uh, in their trading. It's something that exists uh, very successfully in the securities world. Right. Um, secondly, I think the a winner here has gotta be DeFi, because with DeFi, you get typically, uh, there are exceptions, but you get collateral deposited into the DeFi protocol, and then you, you borrow another asset on that collateral. If the value of that collateral declines below a certain price, there aren't discussions. There isn't a threatened lawsuit. It is immediately liquidated by a smart contract and just like that. And so even in the crypto winter, this is the most stress I can imagine, you know, in, in both in centralized uh, crypto finance and in DeFi, and DeFi is held up a lot better because they just liquidate. It's a machine. It doesn't have feelings. It will liquidate the collateral before you get underwater uh, on the loan. And then the last thing I would say is I'm just certainly amazed uh, at how Bitcoin has held up in the face of relentless bad news. I don't, you know, I'm not a real market guy per se. But it's been amazing that you, you'd be tempted to conclude that there is actually some utility to holding on to uh, uh, Bitcoin in good times and bad. Well, you'd certainly be tempted to include that the Bitcoiners have a very valid point uh, about all the stuff that happens in the centralized world uh, when you have uh, the ability for human fallibility, human errors, bad actors, all those kinds of things uh, to step in that Bitcoin uh, is simply not subject to. Uh, again, not endorsement of Bitcoin, but the reality is that there is this, this separation of the model uh, between what happens when you have a proof of work network that just relentlessly and consistently uh, year after year continues to go through and secure transactions. a very different world uh, from what we see, obviously, uh, in the centralized space where you have uh, challenges with uh, asset segregation and segregation of functionality. Right, right. You, you alluded to this yourself. And one of the challenges, we, we refer to FTX as an exchange. This is one of my usual soapboxes here on this show. Uh, but really, uh, in the centralized finance world, it would have effectively been serving as like what? An exchange, a custody agent, an investment bank, a venture capital shop, a prop right. shop. I mean, all of these functionalities just have not been segregated. To, to respond uh, to your point and my key takeaways, I think you're absolutely right. The future is decentralized. Uh, that's the direction that this is going. By the way, full disclosure, the decentralized space has challenges as well. Security breaches, we mentioned a bridge attack earlier. Right. There's significant UI and UX issues. Those uh, protocols are not easy to use for people who don't have uh, master's degrees from Carnegie Mellon in computer science. Right. Uh, there's a lot of challenge there. People make mistakes. They accidentally enter things incorrectly. Uh, there are challenges at that space. 
uh, as well. All of these conversations that we've had today kept saying that they rhyme, this idea of segregation of assets. Uh, you know, the, the challenge is, the, the reality here is whenever retail investors get impaired, uh, that means lose money. You have regulators, legislators, law enforcement can and will get involved. They feel that they have an obligation to, uh, and that's really what we're seeing here. Uh, and, uh, and I expect that we'll probably continue to see uh, for some time to come. James, this was just such a great conversation with you. Such a pleasure to have you on to give your analysis on such a wide variety of uh, topics. Uh, I hope you can come back and do this again with us soon. Absolutely. I'd love to do that. Thank you so much for joining us. That's it for today. We'll be back tomorrow with the co-founders of Ethos. See you at 9 a.m. Pacific time, noon Eastern, 5 p.m. in London, live on Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Have a great afternoon, everybody. Oh, 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 oh,